While searching for a new home for a family, Bryn saw an opportunity to introduce much-needed transparency and speed into the real estate market in Colombia. Today, the company she co-founded, Happy, is a leading startup in the field. Bryn and I talked about her background in real estate finance, her journey to start a business in Colombia, and her personal experience with real estate technology. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. I'm glad that we could connect. Uh, you know, we connected a couple of years ago, and as I was reflecting on my walk uh, over here, the one that got away, I was reflecting on it this morning uh, on a, a couple dimensions. And here are my quick reflections. Um, first of all, when you when you come from a sector, you always think it's like impossible that someone else can do something that you didn't do because you suffered so much. So that was one thing. I think that I was also just a little bit arrogant in my like connected to that and like didn't allow me to step up. And then the third thing was, it's funny because I thought that I might be over-indexed in prop tech. It turns out I wasn't. Like, <laughs> like there's actually a lot of opportunity in prop tech. So, so anyways, those are my quick reflections and you've got to have the humility to be able to like, you know, recognize when you, when you make a mistake. So uh, congratulations on everything you've done since those early conversations when it wasn't even Abby. It was, I can't even remember the name of the- It was Vivi. It was Vivi. Yeah, but I would also say that uh, I don't think you've been arrogant because you've been extremely helpful to us at many stages of the growth of hobby. So we're thankful to you for that. And I think what you said about an industry in which you have operated, it's probably because you know too much. Like ignorance is bliss in investing a little bit. And I think if you see a company trying to change a space that you saw like the nitty gritty and the gore of, it makes sense that you're more skeptical because you just know how difficult it can be. Yeah, I just got my butt kicked for too long. And I'm like, oh, like, you know, it, 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 it's something that I just knew would be hard. But, I, but, you know, when you've come in with a fresh set of eyes too, and, you know, I mean, you came from real estate. I think that's a good segue to kind of my, my first question is, you know, there, there are plenty of opportunities to be an executive, um, you know, in the real estate segment. And you, you know, you were at Goldman, but what made you decide to just dive in and say, okay, this is the opportunity that I, that I want to tackle? It's a great question and something that I think about a lot because of how different my co-founder, Sebastian, who you know very well, and I are, uh, where Sebastian considers himself an entrepreneur for life. He was a former founder of another successful company uh, and had always planned to start another business. And I, on the other hand, was pretty content kind of going a more traditional route. I did know from a very early age that I wanted to work in real estate and specifically in residential. Because in college, in my finance concentration at school, I took a class on international housing finance systems or kind of understanding mortgages around the world. And it opened my eyes to the impact that proper housing policy, homeownership rights, um, and mortgage systems can have on the wealth and stability of individuals, families, communities, and entire economies. And a light switch then, and I said, this is what I want to do with my life. And then I spent the next few years transitioning from kind of more traditional finance into real estate and was in a real estate investing group after a little while at Goldman uh, and wrote my whole application for HBS on being able to transform uh, people's ability to have power over these big decisions in their lives through information uh, and kind of understanding of the places in which we live, work, play, 
and otherwise exist. Um, so I was just obsessed with doing something in real estate. And then I, I didn't, I never considered myself a founder. I never would have pictured myself as an entrepreneur. But when I arrived at Columbia in 2016, had a really hard time finding a place to live myself. Uh, and we often tell this story that we'd been looking online, looking online while we were in the United States and eventually just moved to Columbia and we're staying with my mother-in-law and had to go take tours in person to understand the apartments that were available. We got iPhone photos and that was the limit of the resources that were available to us. And I was just shocked. And I had always thought that real estate was kind of the last frontier and the last industry to be addressed. And I saw the advancements in the United States because I'd worked at two prop techs. Uh, and this was like going back 20, 30, 40 years. Like it, there was just no information whatsoever. Uh, and that was my first clue to this could be something really big and maybe I should figure out how I could address this. Uh, and then it wasn't until I convinced Sebastian eventually to start a business with me that I was able to go for it. Uh, but that's kind of the background in Genesis. Ironically, your description is the same it was that it was in 2005 when I moved to Columbia. Um, it, it didn't, it had, you're right, it didn't change much. Like you're, it's exactly the same experience I had when I moved to Columbia. Um, now, I moved to Columbia a long time ago. It's been now, I guess you've been in Columbia since 2016, you said. So, you know, yeah. almost coming up on seven years. You know, what What brought you to Latin America? You grew up in New Jersey, right? So what, what's, yeah. you know, what, what's the attraction to, to Latin America? And why did you pursue the opportunity in, in this region? So I grew up in New Jersey. I'm definitely uh, a very American seeming, uh, which is pretty funny to be an entrepreneur now in Latin America. And uh, I think you can understand the landscape into which I entered. I ended up moving to Columbia because I married a Colombian. When I was at business school, I, I, so I, I met my husband Julio the summer before business school. We'd both been at Goldman and uh, were at HBS together. We were hallmates on an off-campus apartment building in the same section, started dating and at the end of the day, we both had job opportunities in the United States. He had an interesting job opportunity in Columbia. And it came down to my willingness really to say, life is short. I've never really lived outside the United States except for educational opportunities. Let's do it. Uh, I'll get a job. And I ended up getting a job at McKinsey, which was a wonderful learning opportunity, and see how it goes. And it ended up, obviously, being one of the best decisions of my life. My life. Uh, and I actually also point to this a fair amount, only more recently when I've had time to reflect, that it was a wonderful lesson kind of in karma and in trusting the way that things should be. Because when I made the decision to move, I actually had a fair number of people who were a little bit judgmental and surprised that I was moving down to Columbia from to a country that my husband had more ties to than I did. And there were some messaging around the lines of, You've always been so ambitious. You've always really cared about your career and your studies. And now you're moving to this other place, kind of like wink, wink. How can you be doing that? Are you just giving up on everything that you worked for? Whereas I figured I'm getting this unbelievable opportunity to see a thriving part of the world. Uh, and I'll see where it takes me. And by the way, I'm working at McKinsey. Like there's a very real thing that I'm go doing and I'm going to be learning and I'm, I'm not kind of throwing away everything I worked for. And then obviously out of it came hobby, but I think it's a good lesson in life that sometimes people think that you're being insane and you have to know when you're making the right decision. hundred percent. Like, so I'm just diving in and, and there's, you know, I think it's, it, it's the Stanford commencement speech, Steve Jobs about connecting the dots, looking backwards, right? It's, maybe it's not so obvious 
you know, I, I studied Spanish in college and then everyone's like, oh, you're, so you're going to be a Spanish teacher. And it turns out there was some other practical applications for that when I moved to Latin America. So, um, you know, I think it's, uh, it's great that you were able to just dive in and have the faith that things would work out and, and, you know, things have. I want to talk more about those first kind of early days of hobby. You know, you and Sebastian, you've got, you know, talk about the thesis that you had when you first started, how that's evolved over time. Walk us through kind of the, the evolution there. Sure. So it really started with the residential market is fundamentally broken. We looked at the way in which it functioned. And to give you a quick sense, I mean, you obviously know, but the background is majority of homes, uh, or the average time on market, excuse me, is about 12 months to sign a PSA to sell a house. It can take three months to close. It can take up to eight months to close and actually get paid, depending on how the buyer is getting financed. I That means that it is about two years, one and a half to two years of someone's life to sell their house and do what they need to do with their lives. And there is very, very little information. There's no MLS. Uh, The listing players are more like Craigslist sites. And the most common way to sell your home actually doesn't include any form of electronic or digital listing. It's to hang a phone number in your window. Uh, Brokers are extremely informal. Uh, it's not a licensed industry. It's extremely fragmented. In the middle class where we operate, most brokers are self-employed. And uh, the last piece is there's really little uh, kind of access to liquidity, especially in the used home space. So 80% of the homes in Colombia, Mexico have no LTV on them whatsoever. Uh, of those homes that do, they have about 50 to 60%. So if you step back and you look at it, you think, wow, there's this massive asset class, $2 trillion of value in Spanish-speaking Latin alone, which is ridiculously under-levered. And all of this wealth that people have worked for is locked in this asset class that takes years to kind of move in and out of. That has to change. And like, how can we, how can we increase access to information and increase liquidity and remove frictions so that people can feel empowered in the most important financial decisions of their lives? Uh, and when you enter a market, which has been, as you mentioned, since you were there in the early 2000s, when I was there in 2016, and for many, many years before that, established habits from people who are used to things not working well and used to having low trust environments, it's really hard to change those habits. So we decided that we would start with our first product um, in the iBuying business, which I'll go into why. Uh, with the vision of eventually building out a full-service platform that would serve as the foundation to support a functioning residential market. Why did we start an iBuying, which is the most (laughs) operationally intensive and capital-intensive piece of the business that one can do? A couple of reasons. One is we knew that to change the habits that had been established, we wanted to own the asset and fully own the customer experience on both sides. You can only really solve the problem of the seller if you can say, I will buy your house. I will guarantee that you can sell your house instead of I'll make the selling process a little bit better, but it still might take 12 to 24 months. I'll buy it for you. I'll sign a PSA in 10 days and I'll give you cash, no financing contingency. Fine. That's obviously solved. For buyers who are used to feeling a lot of trepidation, buying a home that was difficult to verify the paperwork of and understand the value of and all of the things that we discussed, we gave them 
a newly renovated home, paperwork in order, and had a seal of kind of approval and trust related to it. Uh, and then what we do now, which I'll go into later, actually. Uh, so we wanted to own, like, own the customer experience on both sides, one. And then two, we knew that if we were transacting with our own balance sheet, it would instill upon us a discipline around data um, and home prices that would serve us well for the long term. If we stepped into more of an intermediary or marketplace uh, role as our first product, we were concerned that we could kind of just be directionally correct on prices and that would be fine. And then when we wanted to move into a product like iBuying, it would be really difficult to change kind of the DNA of the company to that level of preciseness, which is required for what we do now. So we started there and it was hard. I We were really lucky in a million different ways in the history of hobby, but we were lucky that we were able to get capital for the seed uh, and we were able to have enough to begin buying and selling homes. And not only were we able to get equity capital, but we actually had a deadline to help us finance the acquisition of the homes from the time at which we closed the seed, which gave us the freedom to get a little bit of scale to show proof points before we needed to to raise again. Um, but that that was why we started in iVying, and that is where we began, bought our first house in November of 2019. It was always with this long-term vision of what do we need to do so that millions and millions of middle-class Latin Americans can make important financial decisions with information and freedom to do what serves them best. Uh, and that is why we feel strongly about building out all these other products and services that serve them and also serve the other stakeholders in the community so that all those frictions that I mentioned are removed. One really critical thing that you've mentioned is this whole element of trust, right? We operate in Latin America. These are low trust environments. One of the, the amazing things about the U.S. is that there is just like a baseline of trust and then trust results in kind of speed and things move faster. What would you say is like the one fundamental thing that helps you build trust with your with your customer base early on? You know, because you've got to kind of push that and, you know, and, and enable you to kind of build that initial kind of trust layer. Would you say that it was just buying the properties and it's like, show me the money? Or what was the thing that really kind of turned the, turned the uh, you know, was the key element for you? I'm really glad you highlighted that because I don't think I emphasized it enough in describing the differences in the markets. And especially for the Americans who are listening to the podcast, it is something that is really, really hard to wrap your head around how different the level of trust is in markets like the U.S. versus where we operate. And the best comp I give to what it's like to transact on a home there is if you were to find a used car on Craigslist and meet someone in a parking lot of a supermarket at night and pay them cash. That is kind of what the transaction feels like. The only difference being that there's no Kelly Blue Book with which you can use to value the car. So people are really lost and, and don't feel secure in these, in these transactions. And um, going to how we established trust and hobby, it was not kind of show me the money because if anything, I think that gave people more, uh, concern around who we were and where the money came from. So when we launched Hobby, we spent a lot of time and effort uh, having a thoughtful PR strategy and establishing what the business was, what the uh, kind of data process was behind it, who the individuals in the company were, and where our money was coming from uh, so that we could legitimize 
ourselves as a data-driven residential company with these international investors. Everything was kind of formal and vetted. And uh, we also spent a lot of time partnering with relevant players uh, in Colombia. So with different uh, financial institutions and brokerage shops, and we became close with the Ministry of Housing. We did the first ever digital transaction in the history of the country. Touch points were really important for people to know, okay, they're a legitimate company. Uh, they seem to have money from reliable sources. They work with other people in the country who we know and respect. But even on top of that, for our first handful, I mean, that's an understatement, for a large number of clients for the first year of operations, they actually came into the hobby offices to meet with Sebastian or myself to see face-to-face who they were transacting. Uh, and that is just something you would never see in the U.S. where people just, I don't know, there's just a fundamentally different belief that systems are in place and that you'll be fine, I think, if you're working with a new entity. So one other thing that we did early on and then continue to do more at scale was make ourselves available for in-person interaction at the headquarters. I The first handful or more of customers actually wanted to come into our main offices and meet with Sebastian or myself before engaging in a transaction. Uh, and over time, we actually set up uh, hobby kind of sales offices in different parts around the city so that people could go meet with the commercial team, sign their paperwork in a space that was formal hobby kind of corporate-esque um, and give them the trust that they were engaging with a legitimate organization. And there will all, we, our view is that there will always be some people for whom there's this more relative high touch experience. So a lot of times we call ourselves the high tech, high touch. And um, so that depending on the needs of the client, we're able to meet them where they're most comfortable. Because again, this is the most significant financial asset that most people will ever own in their lifetime. So you have to be able to support them at every stage of the decision process in the way that suits them best. Hey there. Are you learning some good lessons in this episode? I hope so. The founders and angel investors we have on our fellowship programs learn things like this throughout the entire experience. In the Explore Fellowship, we help you kick off your next big idea. With the Angel Fellowship, you can expand your impact as a startup investor. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply for our fellowship programs. Now let's get back to the episode. Thanks a lot. kind of double click on kind of the timing you'd mentioned, you know, kind of some of the timing of all this stuff. And it happened that in Colombia, you know, I guess the whole world hit by COVID-19 and you either had to, you know, reduce salaries, you know, extend your runway, lay some people off. You could talk a little bit more about that moment and how you kind of adapted in that and what lessons you, you know, can share with other founders through difficult times in their startup. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be helpful. Sure. So we call ourselves a company that was not exactly born into COVID, but really grew in COVID. We had begun transactions in November of 2019. And in February of 2020, I was on a trip to New York and COVID really had begun to take off there, but was not as much anywhere else in the United States or in South America. And that was my first clue that something real was coming. So Sebastian and I had a number of conversations between then and mid-March, I would say, to slow the pace of acquisitions because we were ready really to put the kind of pedal down and, and gear up because we felt that we'd proven the model a little bit. 
Uh, so we slowed the pace of acquisitions and we began to move homes off of the balance sheet because we wanted to understand what was happening. And we were really lucky that I happened to be in New York at that moment, get a little bit of a glimpse earlier on of how bad it might become. And when COVID really hit, we were under pressure to cut uh, costs by 30%. And at that time, we had effectively no expenses outside of the acquisitions of homes, which obviously was a lever that we could shift as needed, and payroll. And we had built out the team to probably 50 people at that point who we recruited over the last three to five months and convinced to leave very comfortable jobs with good salaries at, at a place that they would have been safe and their families would have been completely fine. And the amount of stress and anxiety that Sebastian and I felt was tremendous. Uh, we knew that we had to report back with this 30% savings. And we really agonized about what to do. And to give you a sense of the level of focus that we had on it, I was in the hospital on the delivery bed in the middle of labor talking to Sebastian about how we were going to manage this in the email that we were going to send out. Once at that point, thank God we had actually gotten to a solution. But it was like we were obsessive over it uh, because the people and their families were now our responsibility. I, but ultimately, what we decided to do was say to everyone, hey, as you all know, this is happening in the world. We have received very gentle suggestion that, not so gentle suggestion, that we reduce uh, cost by 30%. Effectively, payroll is our only cost. We have two options. Either we will go through and cut 30% of the overhead uh, cost, maybe not 30% of the people, depending on who we cut. Or every single person in this company can take a voluntary pay cut of 30% for an indefinite period of time. And when things recover and we're doing well, we will go back. And we sent out an anonymous poll. And again, thank God, and not anything that I've done, and I'm so lucky this worked out, every single person at the company decided to take a pay cut. And actually, Sebastian and I had uh, quietly, between the two of us, decided to take a larger pay cut. Uh, in the spirit of supporting the team. Uh, and one of our senior leaders raised his hand and said, are you two taking a larger pay cut? If so, I would like to as well. Uh, so we cut salaries of the entire team, a significant amount, obviously. And it wasn't until after we raised our Series A in the summer that we were able to bump people up to where they'd been before and then over time get them even higher. But that was incredibly painful and scary and worrisome. Uh, we're really lucky because once we were able to get through that short period of time, even before the A, we ended up scaling operations really quickly because the need for our services was greater in periods of uncertainty when people actually really needed uh, a trusted partner or access to liquidity. So having the team in place at the scale that we built allowed us to start to speed up again really easily um, and put us in a good place to raise the A, which then positioned us for the future growth. That's amazing, you know, but what what an intense moment. And I want to talk a little bit about, about leadership in times of difficulty. It's a lot to ask of your team, right? So, hey, like we're going to, you know, here are the options. What do you think are the, were the key components, to, I mean, besides you and Sebastian behind the scenes saying, hey, we're going to even go deeper than this as to set an example, besides just setting a, a good example for the rest of the team, what do you think the key moments are that you need to kind of show up for your team in, in moments of difficulty? Uh, to kind of get them through challenging times? So I think, as you know, being a leader of an organization can be really hard 
because one piece of my answer is you have to be honest with people and you need to make them believe and know and trust that you will share with them the reality of what's going on and that that will allow them to make decisions that are crucial for themselves and their family, like the one that we just discussed. On the other hand, you are navigating a really overwhelming amount of things, which is running your actual organization. And then if you're fundraising or you're dealing with um, debt or you're dealing with any sort of other external factor to the company being run on its own, you have to bear the burden of a lot of that yourself. And you cannot expect your team to bear the burden of a lot of the things that you need to shield people from so that they can do their jobs well and and continue to be effective. Uh, so I think all of being an entrepreneur and running a company is finding the right balance between that so that your team knows that you are very genuine and open and sincere and you give them uh, the reality and you give them tools that they need to to make good decisions and do the best thing for themselves or for the company. And then you also need to protect them in some sense. Uh, we at Hobby have always been really lucky because Sebastian is basically the best founder, the best co-founder that could have ever existed. So I have had the most supportive kind of thoughtful partner through these ups and downs. Uh, and between the two of us, I think we are able to find that perfect balance of how we communicate with the team, how we push the team, how we support the team. Uh, but at the end of the day, it comes down to, as I said, being there and being honest and being truthful. And it takes time for people to like really believe you, I think, because you need to prove yourself day in and day out in the way in which you act. Uh, that was really on early on in the, in the company's history. A lot of people who were at Hobby had worked with Sebastian before. So my guess is that that gave us a lot more credibility uh, in the moment. Uh, but that that's kind of my general guidance. Yeah, I think that that trust is built up over time. And it's, you know, kind of how you behave yourself in those in those difficult moments. And it, it's interesting you mentioned because I remember struggling with this a lot about how much to share. You know, in the very early days of Ivoral, we were running out of money. We had, you know, $87 in the bank. We had 20. And I kind of just like... I just kept everything inside. And, um, you know, I would later realize that uh, you do need to share the burden. That's that's something that and people are capable of stepping up. But I always wonder about what's too much. Uh, and, and if, you know, if you can, you know, because it's something you want to protect people, because I think that what I learned is that I'm, you know, it's surprising how much people will step up in, in moments of difficulty. But at the same time, there is a certain degree, right? Like you don't want to freak everyone out where there's just ultimate panic in the company. So it's, it's, it's I think the, the key word is balance that you mentioned. And, and uh, but I would lean towards sharing more because it just builds trust in the organization. And the thing that I've learned is that people actually step up when they're, when they're, you know, you make the call and say, Hey, we need, we need you to, you know, help out on this. And, and then people, people want to, they want to like step up and they want to shine. So, uh, but, it, but it's, just, it's a tough balance to, you know, it's a, to find. Yeah, I think, I think absolutely. I agree with you on all. And I think the way in which you communicate those things, who you communicated with, and also how you manage your own stress. Like there are things that you might think are not a big deal and things that might make other people very anxious and then actually be destructive or things that you think are a really big deal and you're panicking about. And then you share and people can kind of solve, help you solve the problems. 
So those are things you learn over time through the painful journey of learning how to run a company. There's simply something I have to double click on because you did mention something that caught my eye. And you know, you mentioned that you took a took phone calls from the hospital bed. Did I hear that right? Yeah. I mean, so look, I I don't want to say that that should ever be expected of anybody who is working in any place in the world that's not like cool that's not amazing like i i worry about actually mentioning that anecdote because i don't want to normalize and set that as an expectation in that moment i did because hobby was a few months old and because i was so genuinely concerned more than anything about this specific issue of the livelihood of people that we had convinced to join hobby and the risk that they and their families might be faced with if we let them all if we let them go at the beginning of COVID. Um, I'm also, I was very lucky. I like had very healthy pregnancies. I wasn't in a situation that precluded me from being able to do that. But yes, I did. Pretty intense, but but I, I appreciate the, you know, the perspective of, it is important to kind of caveat because there is a bit of the hustle culture that sometimes can be, you know, we're running a marathon. It's not a sprint. But that doesn't mean there's not moments where you got to sprint and you got to kind of like, you know, um, I, I mean, I, I definitely cannot imagine or relate to being pregnant, having a baby and having a crisis in the company at the same time. Um, but that's, you know, it's it's very admirable and, uh, you know, that you were able to kind of pull it out and, and manage it. Um, you know, that sounds very challenging. It's challenging enough just to run a business. And we were just talking about before we started this podcast, because I have you know, I'm in my different location today recording this because my son is really sick. And, you know, the reality is that like raising a family, uh, you know, going through the challenges that happen called life while mal- balancing a business at the same time, you know, it's it's not for the faint of heart. And, you know, it's something that anything that you've learned over, over the years uh, to kind of keep you sane that might be relevant for others? Sure. So it definitely doing work while doing life is a lot and it is extreme at moments in time and then it's really fun and hilarious and joyful at others. Uh, I think what has worked for me is primarily the reason that we are building hobby and the reason that I'm here sustains me through a lot of the exhaustion and feeling overwhelmed, which is we are going to fundamentally change the lives of millions of people through giving them the resources, as I said earlier, to feel empowered in the most important financial decisions of their lives. That affects those individuals, that affects their families, and that affects the community as a whole. Um, This year alone, we helped, I believe, 13,000 families, so not just individuals, make this important financial decision in transacting on their home. You think about how many lives we touch and how direct that impact is, really cool and that keeps you going and it's not this kind of distant far away hard to understand the real end of day kind of what matters about what you're doing um so i'd say one is the purpose and then two i've become like psychotically organized and i have a separate calendar and a separate email that it just has all of my kids' activities and doctor's appointments and locations that they need to be at what period of time that calendar is shared with many, many people. Uh, so getting your life in order is the other thing that makes it possible. Sounds like a smart way to stay sane, uh, to have that really dialed. And then something that we look kind of this process of building a company. I was thinking about it this morning as I was you know, walking to this interview. 
because I'm starting to kind of fundraise uh, for a fund that we have. And, you know, it's our, it's our second fund. And one realization I've had recently is that you've got to learn to love the hard stuff, you know? And so I think there's two points. One, that the purpose is so important. And, you know, and I want to double click on that with you on how you manifest that inside the company, because I think that, you know, as a first time, when I was a first time founder, I, I realized that I got very detached from the, the why. And then that became something that like was an afterthought. And then we had to kind of revisit why we started. And then, and then it was a lot more effort. So that's one thing I, I want to hear from you on how you actually, you know, it's, it seems like it's very top of mind for you. So it's genuine, clear, something you probably discussed, but I want to hear in a second how you make that just so prevalent in the company and in such a core part of your day-to-day operations with your team. Um, but, you know, kind of before we, we, we go into that, you know, on the, on the, on the purpose side, all of this is really hard. And, you know, there's moments like being an entrepreneur, there's like, it's not all those moments of like, oh, for $200 million and I'm going to, I'm going to be able to, you know, take the next step. So I'd like to hear from you. How do you permeate this message of purpose? while at the same time embracing the things that suck as a founder and and learn to love them so that you can kind of push through? Yeah, uh, both great questions. So on the first, uh, Hobby is a very mission-driven company. I, I speak about it personally all the time because it's why I'm here. As we talked about before we started recording, I have three kids four years and under. Um, I've been so ridiculously blessed in my life with lots of wonderful opportunities. And yet I'm here, like pounding the pavement, crawling up a mountain in the dark, suffering day in and day out. I mean, not really suffering, but working ridiculously hard because I feel so like incredibly lucky to have the opportunity to change the lives of others and use the tools that I've been so lucky to be given and build. Uh, to leave the world a better place. And that's why I'm here every day. So it's so easy for me to chat about it anytime I'm hiring. I want to understand what motivates people, why they're here, if they care about the mission of the company. It's okay if they don't have the exact same kind of purpose-driven life that I do, but I want to know what will drive them and what will keep them motivated to help Hobby do what it needs to do. Um, In the company, we have a couple of corporate values that people are evaluated on, that we give awards um, four, and one of them includes, I am the customer's home. Don't ask why like that. The, we're rephrasing all of our values back into Spanish. I never made them English. That's a longer story, but one of them was, I am the customer's home. It's being revamped right now. We're going through the process. Uh, the meaning behind that, though, is staying the same, which is we are here to provide a safe place for all clients of Javi, whether they're buying or selling their home, whether we're helping them originate a mortgage, uh, whether we're just giving them a free evaluation of their home. Um, but we want them to do the right thing for themselves. And we want them to feel that they are in a place in which they can feel comfortable and do something that's correct for them. We will never try to take advantage of a client, et cetera. That is not the way that we operate because that's short-term and not fair. And um, so the fact that one of the four main values of the company is I'm the customer's home and it's written all over the walls, people get evaluated in their performance reviews, et cetera, really kind of enforces it, I think, on a day-to-day basis. And on the second question, how do you learn to love Oh, the yeah. Purpose? How do you enjoy how do you enjoy the hard times? I think that you just have to 
put one foot in front of the other. Uh, I climbed Kilimanjaro. I can't remember now. Maybe 2013, 2014, 2013, I think. And with my little brother. And the last day is the long hike to the summit, maybe 10 hours. And we started the hike at 10.30 p.m. So as you can imagine, it's dark and you have your headlamps on and you're kind of trudging through the night. And I asked our guide the day after the summit, why did you start at night? Because we summited really early in the day. There was no need to summit that early. And he said that they found that the success rate when they started the summit hike at night versus in the day was much higher because people couldn't see how far and how high the walk was when you started at night and it allowed them to actually be able to complete it. And I think sometimes that type of blindness and just looking down at what you need to do one foot in front of the other in really difficult times is the only way to get through. Of course, you need to have your five-year, 10-year, why you're here mission always as your North Star. But there are really, really difficult, steep moments of hiking that you just have to look down and kind of go boom, 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 boom. Um, and the other thing I would say is, again, I have Sebastian, who is the nicest, most upbeat, most optimistic co-founder on the history of the planet. So I'm lucky to have him to help me get through those trows. Love the analogy. And, you know, I would describe it maybe as a little bit of it's an important type of dose of naivete, right? When you're, yeah. when you're building a company and, and that, that darkness, not being able to know exactly everything that you're getting into enables you just to kind of take those steps. And, and, and so I think that that's a, it's a wonderful analogy. And what's cool about it is you gave an analogy of something you actually did too. It's not like uh, a concept <laughs> of you actually climbed Kilimanjaro. So you actually, you basically were able to also say I'm a badass too. Uh, not just, I'm not just a great story, but <laughs> I live the story. So I, I really like that. Speaking of, you know, a badass, um, you know, you've been a total, like just You've crushed it on the fundraising side, which, you know, you, you, you know, hearing you speak, I remember we were at the, you know, the, I think it was the LTF, which is a Riverwood event in Miami. And I remember there's a little round table, some real estate talk. And I was like, I remember I was like, wow, she's really crisp when she talks about her business. Like it's very clear, you know, direct, concise, you know, talk about maybe some, what are the things you've learned in this fundraising process? Anything unconventional that, maybe surprised you as you went through the process of raising capital because you were quite successful at, at raising capital. And, you know, so share us, give us the cliff notes. What are the learnings? What are the lessons that you, you know, that you were able to, to execute on that, that helped you be successful? So thank you uh, for saying that I'm Chris, because sometimes I feel that I talk for long periods of time and I hope that it's as clear to everyone else as it was in my head before I began chatting. I, I will say that sometimes it is funny to me that people say that I've been really good at fundraising because it's really hard. It was even really hard when everyone said money was flowing out of spigots and anyone could get it anywhere. It was still hard. It ended up working out for hobby, but it was never something that you just show up and people are like begging to wire you money. And I think that that world in which everyone either experienced it and I was the only one who didn't or pretended that it was like that was kind of destructive for founders because it created a lot of unnecessary anxiety. Uh, but what I have learned along the way is 
one, kind of the way in which people like to be communicated to at different periods of time, like at the time of the seed, and then as you become more of a mature company. Um, and two, really staying, and I, I hate this word, so I like I'm annoyed at myself for using it, but staying authentic to who you are. And it sometimes was hard because I felt that we were in a world in which comps regardless of what industry or region they were in, we are, we're painting things in such a perfect light, whether or not it may have already been accomplished or is kind of more theoretical or a little bit more smudged along these sides. And I am a very kind of like direct, concrete, honest person. And I felt that sometimes I was disadvantaging hobby because I was very factual about where we were, what we had achieved, what our plans were. And I never felt comfortable exaggerating is the nice word for it, but ever saying things that were kind of hopefully going to maybe be true. And what I found over time is people get to know you. And then if you stay really consistent and you say things the way that you always say things and you say things the way that you truly believe them to be and you are more factual, back to the trust thing, it builds up trust over time. And even though you end up talking to different groups of investors over the years, your reputation as a very straightforward, genuine, trustworthy person will carry you through. Um, so that was a lesson that I was worried we were going to kind of learn the other way, which is be a little bit more of a shows show person or salesperson. Um, and in reality, at least so far, it's ended up working out. Uh, and then the last thing I would say is it always, like everything, it takes a team. So it's unfair that I get a lot of the benefit for how well we've done in fundraising. I have the most phenomenal finance team and then operations team and commercial team and everyone who does the work to have the numbers on the page look really good. So it's not so hard to fundraise for a company when you're making money on every unit that you transact on. You have a clear path to profitability and you're growing many, many times a year. Yeah, I mean, the numbers, the numbers are, are, are key, particularly as you get, you know, further down the line in the beginning, it's a lot of the vision, the team, all that. And, you know, obviously, uh, you know, when you deal with growth investors, it's kind of, you know, show me, show me the numbers, right? That's the, yeah. the mantra. Hey there, you might be thinking about how hard it is to build a venture backed company. Well, I know firsthand and I made some mistakes along the way. We lost over $100 million in capital gains taxes because of the company formation mistake that I made. I don't want that to happen to you. That's why we built Latitude Go. We provide an optimal offshore structure for your startup, and we do it in record time. And guess what? It's five times less expensive as other options, and we use the same legal documents as the top-tier law firms. To find out more, check out latitude.com forward slash go. Now, let's get back to the episode. How does the current macro environment affect, you know, the, the, the business and cost of capital has gone up? Uh, you know, would, would love to hear kind of how you, you know, are, are planning for 2023 when you look at, you know, you were successful in raising even in a, in a, in a bear market, right? So back to the kudos again, uh, you know, you successfully raised in a bear market. How do you, you know, how does that affect your plan, your planning moving forward as we enter this kind of, you know, potentially recession and, and, you know, kind of where we are in the, in the macro. 
it is definitely a different world today than it was when we started and raised our A and our B. Uh, we feel very good about the position that we are in right now because, as you mentioned, we raised our $200 million equity Series C in May. And that gives us sufficient runway to continue sustained, rapid, but responsible growth for the next few years. Um, and it's great because we had this really special moment in time where we were pretty large at the time that markets started to turn. We are the largest buyer and seller of used homes in both Colombia and Mexico by many orders of magnitude. We're the largest mortgage originator in Colombia. We do more than two times the number of transactions in Bogota every month. We give that many free evaluations. So we'd achieved kind of a, a scale and a presence and proof points around our profitability that not only were we able to raise, but it also makes the burden of growth that we're undergoing now less heavy uh, because of the fact that we are able to make money at scale from the transactions that we're running in the iBuying side. Um, that said, it's a different environment. So we are being thoughtful around the mentality, which used to be grow as fast as you can and then figure out the rest. We were always a little bit more conservative from that because Sebastian, again, had had started another company in a different fundraise environment than the one we started hobby in. So he always had in the back of his mind, this might change and we need to be really frugal and thoughtful and responsible. So that was a different balance that we were in, which is we were under the pressure from investors of two years ago, which is just grow as fast as you can, you'll be rewarded for it. And his very prescient thoughtfulness around uh, making sure that you are financially conservative. Um, and that's kind of the mentality we're going into the next two years with. We're extraordinarily excited about the traction that we have in Mexico. Colombia is already our more established business. We'll continue to grow across all of the business lines. Um, same in Mexico. And, and then we'll look for when times are more attractive if we need to. Uh, but for now, we're kind of heads down executing and thankful for the moment in time that we were when things shifted. The benefit of being in real estate is that, you know, you don't need to be in every market because like a city is a market, right? Like it's, it's, it's just such enormous TAM that allows you to, you know, you don't need to be, you know, completely regional or, you know, across the, you know, all these different countries because you're just going into a city. So I think that's a benefit of prop tech in terms of the, you know, the need to really focus and own kind of a specific market. And it's incredible. You've got that kind of traction and, and, you know, such a short amount of time, you've been able to build a business that's transacting more than, you know, all these players that have been around for, for a really long time. I hear you mention Sebastian a lot, which I think is really important, this, this co-founder relationship. If you could kind of distill down, you know, the key things when forming a partnership, looking back to when, you know, because I did recall in this interview, you said, hey, I, I went night and I was like, hey, let's, let's partner together. So, you, you know, it sounds like you sought him out as a partner. So what was it about the qualities that he has that, you know, made him a great partner in building this business? And then how do you look to kind of support each other, uh, you know, in this, in this kind of journey building a company? Yeah, happy to talk about it. Uh, 
I have a sample size of one, so I don't know if I'm the best person to give advice specifically on this because I did it once and it worked out really well, thankfully. Uh, but I have known Sebastian for about a decade. Uh, as a friend, he and his wife came to our wedding and I always respected him as an entrepreneur uh, and as just a really smart, fun, thoughtful guy. I, after co-founding and running Workeo for a number of years, he ran the digital transformation at one of the largest banks in Colombia and brought for the first time in the history of the country a lot of retail products online. So he had such phenomenal experience in operationally intensive businesses as well as um, understanding how to bring financial services online, both of which ridiculously relevant for a company like Hobby. And I knew that he was always going to start another business, as I mentioned earlier, because he considers himself an entrepreneur for life. Uh, on the personal side, he is very, so I'd say professionally and personally, he's very complimentary to me. He is, as I said before, kind of an eternal optimist. Uh, he's really great at disarming people and he's a wonderful eye for talent. Um, and he's great with all of the technical pieces that I had less experience with um, around kind of building out the digital lab at the bank and running product management tools and marketing and things that I just hadn't had um, a history of in the past. Uh, so I basically did exactly what you said, which was said, I, I think you're going to start another business. I know you're considering what to do. I would love to do something in residential. What do you think? Like, let's try to let's noodle on some ideas. And it became really clear very quickly when we were putting together five page, very early draft pitch decks for BB pre-hobby, uh, that it was kind of a nice balance that would work out really well. Could we have ever projected that it would work out as well as it has today? Definitely not. I don't think I could have hoped that through the difficult moments it would have worked with the level of respect um, and trust and kind of fun that it has, but we've been lucky. One piece that I didn't mention actually is respect. And I think a key thing that has allowed us to navigate the last few years where obviously we don't agree on everything um, is respect. And we have found a very healthy way to debate and discuss and dispute things um, that never crosses the line of something that becomes like a pain point for the relationship. And we respect each one's realm of responsibility. And if at the end of the day, something is Sebastian's responsibility, he, I will defer to him at the, at the final moment and I will push and I will scream and I will make my points. I don't want to actually scream, but I will like really make work to show why I think what I think, but that's his realm. And at the end of the day, that's his, um, and vice versa. And I think that's what has allowed us to maintain kind of the, the balance that we have to date. Do you delineate very clearly like where responsibilities start and stop? And is that something that, you know, has changed over time? So yes and no. I mean, we, we each have the things that are our responsibilities formally and, and teams that report to us and areas that are our kind of formal responsibility, the org chart. Um, there are just some things that I tend to take over and some things that Sebastian tends to take over that are not kind of like core pieces of the business. And those have been naturally established over time. And we 
allow those informal delineations also to stay true through that kind of balancing that I said before. Just more specifically, can you just like just give an overview of like what sits with you, what sits with him, and and then yeah, the, the kind of the gray area things. Was it kind of just a, just natural ability for you know the person had a more of an inclination towards that, or how do those things get sorted over time? Is that just something that's built with with over you know over time with trust? Sure. So on the first piece, I um, I oversee finance people uh and all capital raising and um like external relations so managing the board and managing kind of everything that we do outside of the company mostly pr etc i i also oversee strategy that we don't have a separate strategy team sebastian oversees data tech operations um and commercial and the way that we kind of think about it is like I make sure that we know where we're going. Like if you think about the, I'm kind of making this up on the go, so bear with me. But if you think about a car, I make sure that the GPS is in the right, has the right destination. And I make sure there's gas in the car. And I make sure that there's seatbelts in the car and that the car is there. And Sebastian drives like, drives the car, is the mechanic for the car, everything else. And like I've facilitated that it knows where it's going and the main pieces are there and then he just executes everything else. That's good. It's, it's really important to have those clear kind of established, uh, you know, and, and I think the analogy is good uh, off the top of your head. Uh, it, was, <laughs> it was very clear to me. Uh, well, well, listen, uh, I really have enjoyed the chat. Uh, it's, it's quite impressive uh, how far you've come since those early days we, you know, spoke. And so, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think you've inspired a lot of other entrepreneurs and so it's great to great to see what you've been able to build. Uh, so I'm excited to see this next iteration of uh, you know uh, of Happy as we you know as as you kind of enter into this new realm of, of building building the business. And uh, you know, thanks a lot for sharing your experience with all of our listeners. And and uh, we'll definitely be in contact. Uh, we'll have you on again at some point, uh, you know, to kind of give an update. I would love that, Brian. Thank you for having me. I mean, we're just trying to follow in your footsteps. Uh, <laughs> And I love, and for the region. It's a whole new, another level, which makes me happy. Uh, you know, I, someone needed oh. to do it. So thank you for, for solving, helping solve real estate, which is, is, you know, I got a, a little start, but, uh, you know, we're, it's a new era. And so I'm happy to see the new era. Well, thank you. I would love to come back. And um, this is a lot of fun. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to Latitude Podcast. Subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast for more talks with great founders and investors. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.